there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. You know, I'm a long-term feminist activist and um, when you see the word feminist, you you know, your eyes light up. Well, number one, that it's, um, you know, the speakers and everyone are feminists. And I've always been a strong believer in the fact that we really need to um, push that perspective to bring about changes, successful changes for women. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Feminist Writers' Festival, Sydney, 2018. Supported by Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales and produced by Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This session is Why Do Women Read Fiction and Men Don't? This is a recording from the Feminist Writers' Festival 2018, Sydney. We'd like to acknowledge that the festival was held on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd also like to thank our partner, the UTS Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion. Enjoy the podcast and connect with us on social media or via the FWF website, feministwritersfestival.com. Hello. My name is Veronica Sullivan. Uh, I'm very lucky to be on the board of the Feminist Writers Festival and I'll be just introducing today's session before we pass over to our fantastic panel. Thank you for coming along to this afternoon's session, Why Women Read Fiction and Men Don't. So I'll introduce our panel and then we'll throw over to them for some wonderful conversation and we'll have plenty of time uh, at the end for your questions, so please do be thinking about those during the convo. So to introduce, uh, from the far end, we have Karen Goldsworthy. Karen is an Adelaide writer and a former university lecturer in literature. She's published books, essays, short stories and reviews and was the inaugural chair of the judging panel for the, the Stella Prize. She won the 2013 Pascal Prize for Cultural Criticism and the 2017 Horn Prize for her essay, The Limit of the World. Next to Karen is Anna Funda. Anna is one of Australia's most acclaimed and awarded writers. Her novel, All That I Am, won the Miles Franklin Prize. Stasiland, hailed as a classic, won the 2004 Samuel Johnson Prize for Best Nonfiction Published in English, and both books are published in over 25 countries. Next to Anna is Deborah Adelaide. Deborah is the author and editor of more than 15 books, including reference works, fiction and non-fiction. Her research areas include Australian women writers and contemporary readership. Her published fiction includes the best-selling novel The Household Guide to Dying and The Women's Pages, and the short story collections Letter to George Clooney and the forthcoming Zebra. She is Associate Professor in Creative Writing at UTS. And closest to me is Anita Heiss. Anita is the author of non-fiction, historical fiction, commercial fiction and children's novels. She's a regular guest at writers' festivals and travels internationally, performing her work and lecturing on Aboriginal literature. She's a lifetime ambassador of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation and a proud member of the Wiradjuri Nation of Central New South Wales. Please join me in welcoming our panel. Hi, everyone. Uh, before we begin with the questions, uh, Dr. Heiss has something to say to you. Yiridu Marang, Yundu Yanada Heiss, Baladu Wiradjuri Gialang, Arambaji Bull, Brungli Bull, Mirgandi Bala Williams, Yindamaradu, Gadigul Gul, Mangul. 
So I just wanted to say I'm learning the Rotary language and I wanted to well, acknowledge country, but thank you. I acknowledge country and, um, and because my next novel, uh, the dialogue of the main characters will be all in Wiradjuri language. So. Well, that's the plan. It may not happen. <laughs> we'll have to learn. Um, this topic is, of course, a slightly contentious one. Why women read fiction and men don't. Um, immediately I'm, I'm expecting someone to leap up and say, not all men. Um, and that is, of course, true. Not all women either. Um, but the thing is, there are endless statistics, um, and I will not bore you with statistics because there's nothing worse in a situation like this. Um, there are endless statistics to show that women do, in fact, read more than men generally and um, very specifically read a great deal more fiction than men do. So we're addressing this as a kind of general um, proposition. There's statistical evidence that women read more novels, that women belong to more book clubs, that women use libraries more and that women buy more books. Um, I can remember at the Melbourne Writers' Festival 20 years ago, one of the visiting writers, a man, um, saying disdainfully that, you know, most of the people at the Writers' Festival appeared to be middle-aged women in hats. Now, you know, as a middle-aged woman in a hat, I took umbrage at <laughs> But another male writer, and I'm fairly sure it was the Irish writer Roddy Doyle. Um, some of you may have seen the movie of The Commitments. Roddy Doyle wrote the novel and I think also the screenplay for that. Um, took issue with this bloke and he said, the women in hats, the middle-aged women in hats, are our readers and the people who buy our books. And pointed out that some respect was due. Um... And interestingly, that line seems to have sort of faded over the last 20 years or so. I, I can't remember. It was, one, it was a member of the panel, I can't remember which one, who alerted me to a story about another male writer, frequenter of writers' festivals, Ian McEwan, author of Atonement, another, you know, best-selling literary fiction, who apparently conducted an experiment one day. He went into the park with his son and started handing out free copies of his novels. Um, the men were very suspicious. What's, what's this? You know, what, why, why, do you, why are you giving me this? What, what, oh, it's a, oh, it's a book. <laughs> and the women descended on him like locusts and, <laughs> and took, ripped the books out of his nerveless fingers. And his, his conclusion from this experience was, when women stop reading, the novel will be dead. So there's a little background for you. Here's a slightly more earthy bit of background for you from a blog deathlessly called The Good Men Project and I quote, men would get laid more often if they read more fiction. <laughs> I was thinking of, you know, doing a survey, true, false, you know. <laughs> Perhaps they should ask. A couple of things about the topic. Um, the topic as we've got it implies a, not only a clear distinction between men and women, but also a clear distinction between fiction and non-fiction. Um, that is contentious because I think it's clear to all of us that both of those boundaries are actually starting to break down. Um, you know, there are large, large grey areas between the categories of men and women and between the categories these days especially of fiction and non-fiction. Um, I hope we can explore those questions as we go. If, if they come up in the flow of conversation, that would be great. 
I should also point out that every woman on this stage has published at least one book of fiction and at least one book of non-fiction. So we're all talking from our own experience and that might be where we start. I want to ask the panel um, what their personal experience has been when it comes to this topic. I mean, you know, what were the things that went through your mind when you first saw that this was the topic that we would be discussing? You know, what did the men, you know, think about this? Well, I have two little anecdotes, personal ones, in response to that, Karen. My dear old dad, who died only a few months ago, always maintained that he couldn't read fiction particularly by women, that he couldn't get into the head of a woman. It was completely alien to him. And he used to say this with some glee because he then would, would follow that up with, well, that means I don't have to read your next book. Yeah. Um, so, in fact, he didn't read most of the books I've published and it really didn't worry me. But I do think about that quite a bit, why men have these very hard and fast rules about what they will and won't read. And the other personal anecdote is from the other generation, my youngest son, who when he picked up the women's pages when it was published a couple of years ago and he read the first page, he groaned and said, oh, domestic stuff again. Why don't you write a book that I can read? And that is still my challenge actually. I'm very interested in exploring how I could write a book that would appeal to a young man but also to a reader such as myself. Yeah. The, the idea that it's domestic stuff that he responded to. Um, well, it just happened to be on the first page. You know, <laughs> the the you whole novel like, wasn't as domestic. In, as in kitchens and bathrooms or... or cooking. Cooking. Food. Yeah. 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 Um, Perhaps you could point him to a Yota Motolenghi book or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so those are family, family stories. So that's your first-hand knowledge of blokes responding to your own work. It's really interesting. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting that neither of them felt clearly any obligation to be positive about it. And, and not only that, no, not even the slightest sense of obligation that they should read anything written by their daughter or their mother. Mm. <laughs> Which in a way doesn't really bother me because I know I'm not writing for them. I know I'm not writing for my immediate family members. No, 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 no. Anna, what about you? What was your first thought um, about your own experience when you saw it? Um, my first thought about this topic wasn't actually about my own experience so much as um, I think that women do – I'm in this um, very cranky middle-aged phase at the moment and I'm writing a long feminist essay and I think it's literally going to strangle me because it's never-ending and everything – Every day that goes on, there's something more I have to put into it. So it's like this magic pudding of a thing that's going to kind of strangle me. But I think that um, women have to do a lot of the emotional work of keeping family and, by extension, extended family and friends and society going. And that work, which is work, is associated with our essence as women. Women are caring in some essential way. Um, well, I'm not sure that applies to me. <laughs> You know, I experienced that obligation to care, you know, for some people as automatic and for other people as work and it's work. And that is a whole sphere of intimate emotional life 
that involves very sophisticated psychological skills, not all of which I have. But that is also the terrain of a novel. So I think that women are attracted to reading novels because we have to we operate in a world where the obligations on us, which are enormous, they're about the mental health of all the people around us. We learn a lot by reading books that represent complicated interpersonal arrangements and complicated psychology on a massive spectrum from psychological violence to psychological well-being. Uh, and that is a spectrum of what is pejoratively called the domestic novel. So it is incredible to me that something that is so massive and so important to society as a whole can be diminished as domestic. And I think that's what this title, um, in its essence, doesn't, it's not doing it, but it's drawing attention to that fact. Mm. And then, see, I, I need to be stopped. This is part of <laughs> I'm not going Can I say to say one more thing. Please, look, you're the panel. Carry on. Um, so that led me to thinking a little bit about this moment in in patriarchy, really. So if you um, if half the population is somehow going to be made into a minority, which is an incredible thing to do. So in patriarchy, that's the essence of it. Half the population is made into a special interest group. So that is women or women's fiction. It's the same mechanism as, say, you know, where um, professions are all women like nurses or teachers or something. They are then diminished. It's a similar but much more massive thing that's going on. So patriarchy has to work very, very hard to suppress women and their interests. And we are, we are now at a moment where we're seeing that work very explicit. We're seeing it every day in the paper. We're seeing it with the whole Weinstein thing, the Jeffrey Rush thing, uh, what happened at Channel 7. We're seeing the seams crack in the very hard work that patriarchy has to do to make women into a special interest group. And so I kind of I understand the title of this session, but I and I think it's necessary and we should draw attention to it in order to refuse it and refute it. So that was my thing. Thank you. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> Well, Anita, what about you? What were your first thoughts? Um, having done a very similar session at the Byron Bay Writers' Festival this year and two years in a row at another festival on exactly the same time, so on a Sunday morning, Susan Johnson and I did a session on women's writing. Exactly the same session. And when I saw this um, title, I thought to myself, why are we still having to validate through these conversations, what we do, why we do it, who we write for, and that women's stories, well, stories that are about the lives of women in whatever genre, that they matter. And I was just thinking when you were talking about your dad, because I didn't come from a home with books. I think my father read me one golden book as a child. And the only time he read was when we were up in the mountains and he read Westerns. And uh, we've you know, on the hierarchy of literature, that's at the bottom, and I write chick lit, which is just one rung up. And but what I, what I realise now, thinking about my dad as a non-reader, as English as a second language, it was seeing him, seeing what he liked. You know, the John Wayne thing on the page, and because I write across genre, children's fiction, women's fiction, whatever you want to call it, I'm always trying to reach an audience about issues that are important to me, and I think. I think, I don't know how other people write, but I'm thinking women, like women of colour, want to see women of colour on the page and so forth. And so I think people are reading 
more women are reading books because they're looking for things, they're seeing themselves on the page and men are reading books and seeing themselves in, in different areas. And I don't, I don't see it as a problem. I see what I think if an issue is for me is that we're constantly having to validate, particularly myself in writing what is regarded as, um, you know, not highbrow literature, mm. validate what I do as a, as, a, as a female writing stories that I want other females in Australia to read. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I do, I do think I've, – I've started to think myself as, as that this business about highbrow literature or literary fiction or whatever you want to call it is starting to break down a little bit. Um, like, you know, other boundaries that we've talked about, I have – I find myself again and again because I read novels for a living basically. I read an awful lot of them and I see just as many excellent um, genre novels – by which I mean things that have set out to be crime or set out to be chick lit or whatever, excellent genre novels and really, really terrible novels that think of themselves as literary fiction. You know, so it isn't a matter of whether it's, um, you know, good makes it literary. It's a matter of whether it's good in its genre. Um, and, and I think people are starting to actually acknowledge that more and more. I did think to myself also, because when we get these topics and questions, it does make, it does make us you know, transport ourselves to moments when we've been at libraries or festivals and remember who's in the audience. And, for instance, I have a children's novel about the stolen generations that many adults read because they're not going to read the Bringing Them Home report but they Mm -hmm. want to learn about and be transported through story. And, you know, I've had retired men come up to me at festivals having read that novel although it wasn't designed for them and I remember being at the Reality Bites festival in Noosa some years ago which is it was a non-fiction I think it was a non-fiction festival for some reason I was talking about Paris Dreaming and there was a man in the audience and question time his hand went up first and his question was I want to know why you didn't mention men in your novel till page 90 or something like that (laughs) no which is interesting because I had no idea I don't even know if that's the true. I haven't checked it. But he, he knew what page number that the first male's dialogue appeared in. The, so there are, there are these pockets of gentlemen who are engaging in, in our work as well. They're just not en masse. Mm. That sounds to me like someone's setting out to do a deliberate critique, though. That sounds like a gotcha question to me. I'm actually, I'm really interested in your phrase, transported by story, so interested, I'm going to start jumping around in my questions here, but one of the things I noticed, I was asked would I, would I write a piece about, you know, this topic um, for Spectrum magazine, which appeared last weekend, and when I was thinking about how I would do this, the two things that kept coming to mind were something happened to me when I was a little kid, which was that I was reading um, Elizabeth Gouger's The Little White Horse in the school library and was so engrossed that I missed the bus. And my poor long-suffering mother had to come and get me. Um, And the other one was a painting, a 19th century painting of a a young woman in full Victorian dress lying on the grass. The painting is called The New Novel. And and it's a painting of a woman completely engrossed. She is away. You know, you could explode a bomb next to her and she wouldn't hear it. She's completely engrossed in this book she's reading. And, and I, you know, that, that kind of intensity with which women read is something I've, I've not seen with blokes so much. I, the, one of the, one of the um, neurologists I was reading on this subject said, women can stay still for longer than men. And I think that's probably true as well. If anyone here is a primary school teacher in particular, you'll probably agree with that. Um, so, that, so it's, it's 
you know, you can think of all sorts of little anecdotal bits and pieces here and there out of your own experience, but it's quite hard to pull together an actual thesis, isn't it, out of, out of, out of a topic like this. So I thought what I would do is ask, because you're all writers, is say, um, how do you envisage your readership and, and does that have anything to do with gender or is it something quite other? Have you got an ideal reader and who is it? Anna? Um, I don't have an ideal reader um, and I don't have a particular reader in mind when I'm working on something and I think uh, I think I don't actually wouldn't know the gender who reads you know I wouldn't know how many men or women read the books um, you know my when the only two main books and they have women really as main characters mm-hmm. and um but I think a lot of men have, have read them. I mean, I get a lot of feedback um, from that. I spend a lot of time – it's a bit like getting a piece of marble. You know, you've got an idea for a project and this is going to be the shape of it and you're hacking away to try and make something that – like a statue that makes sense and also stands up and anyone can look at it. And I think once you start the writing, you're starting hacking at this big piece of marble and then the uh, – you know, the requirements of the work itself take over. So I don't – sometimes when I'm frightened I think about a reader, I just like a friendly reader. (laughs) But I don't think about a reader in terms of gender or age or anything like that. And I try and make the work as um, clear as possible really so that anyone can can read it. Stasiland has been for many years on the – on the HSC list, uh, so there, there's a lot of 17-year-old readers and I certainly wasn't envisaging them. And one in particular, my daughter who's starting HSC this year, who I think, thank God, doesn't have to study it because I certainly wasn't ever thinking that my children, because I didn't have any children, then would be reading this book. So, yeah, no, not a lot of thought into that. <laughs> what about you, Deborah? apart from your immediate family, I mean? What, you have yeah, a readership well, you envisage? You were talking... A little while ago, about the difference between writing fiction and non-fiction, and when you asked that question, I immediately thought back to when I first started doing your column, which I only did. I don't know how you keep doing this for as long as you have. I only did it for four years, and I felt I'd run out of adjectives or something. This is this is the, this, <laughs> this is, is a short the, reviews column. The weekly book review. Well, it was weekly when I did it. Yeah, so for a long time, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Karen has – you've done it for over ten years, haven't you? I've stopped counting. I've stopped <laughs> counting. It's an extraordinary experience. And when I first started writing those book reviews – and these were 150-word book reviews, five was then five books a week – I was reading obviously very, very quickly. But also crafting the responses was a huge challenge because although I'd been used to writing book reviews, writing something – to get the essence to distill into 150 words was a particular challenge. And I actually found I needed to think really carefully about who I was writing the reviews for. And at the time I had a very good friend who was a a, um, a very critical person and he was a great reader and he loved reading what I wrote. But he would often ring me up and say, I don't think that was a very good sentence or you should have chosen a better word here. Um, But he was an engaged reader. And I found it extraordinarily helpful to think of him when I first started writing those book reviews because I thought I need to focus, I need to know who I'm writing it for and he's, he's like the perfect reader for these reviews. So I didn't continue to write them with him in mind but certainly when I was starting out... 
I found that incredibly helpful. When it comes to my fiction, it's very different. I always say that I write for myself first and foremost. So in a sense, that should make me my ideal reader. But I've just been reflecting on this fairly recently actually and I, it struck me that having written the book for myself that I desperately want to read, I then don't go and read it. Because by the time it's finished and edited and proofread and out there, I have absolutely no interest whatsoever <laughs> in rereading it. So it, this is probably a discussion for another panel altogether, actually. So it's interesting that although I've written for myself, I don't end up being the reader of my books. But it's very important for me when I'm writing to write towards that notion of a reader or a readership. It's very important to me that I, uh, I have, a, have a sense of who that reader is because otherwise I feel I'm just writing into some weird void. C.S. Lewis actually said he wrote the Narnia books because he no one was writing the kind of books he wanted to read. And I completely um, understand that. I, f I feel great empathy with that approach. Um, the other thing that propels me as a writer is trying to solve a particular question and it's a little bit different I guess to the sorts of fiction that Anita's writing because Anita's using story to explain something or um, shed light on something that's you know been suppressed or um, information about Aboriginal culture that that we've turned our backs on or you know all those sorts of re reasons. I write because I have a problem or, or one question that I absolutely have to solve, otherwise I won't sleep. And that's that. That sort of connects to the the sense of who my readers might be. Right. People who are interested in pursuing those questions. Or in problems. those questions, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, uh, harking back to your ideal reader for the book reviews, um, and when you said you, know, you run out of adjectives, there's a thing called book review bingo. Um, <laughs> Which is, you know, all the bingo squares and they're having them things like tour de force. Oh, yeah. Unputdownable. <laughs> Page turner. And, the, and the, the, the two hurdles there that I fall over all the time are, I, there were two that just made me cringe. One was lyrical and the other one was haunting. And I thought, I can never say lyrical or haunting again. No. I just can't, you know, no matter how lyrical and haunting this book may be, I'm not allowed to say so. Anita, what about you? You've got a more specific audience, don't you, in well, some ways? There's not enough there's not enough of us to sustain any publishing ventures, so the audience has to be much broader than just blackfellas. But <clears throat> every project is is different. Yeah. And so obviously if I'm commissioned to write a children's novel, I know the audience is quite specific for eight to ten and so forth. Um, um, I've chose to write a couple of novels uh, with young boys as characters because I realised I'd only ever written female stories and I really wanted to provide um, a different story on the page and encourage young boys to read, so that was quite specific. Mm. I'm very um, driven by place and I think oh. I... The audience of the place that I write about is very important to me for authenticity, for them to have a sense of ownership um, and engagement with the story. So my novel, Barbed Wire and Cherry Blossom, set in Cowra about the Cowra breakout. I had the idea and I wasn't thinking about audience at the time except that the Australian literary landscape had failed to talk about 
Aboriginal people going to war and Wiradjuri people being in World War II and so forth. And so I felt compelled. There was purpose to write this story. But as I got into the research and I spent time in Cowra, I realised how important it was for that town, mm. um, and my mother was born on the Rambi Mission in, in Cowra, for that town to actually love this story. It was If they didn't love this story, then that book had no purpose whatsoever really. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I want. I always want to get it right, so I send drafts to you know the Cowra Breakout Association and so forth to make sure I've got everything right on the ground. Um, the the Stolen Generation story. I didn't want. I got commissioned to write the Who Am I, the Diary of Mary Talents, and because they wanted it for a school audience and so forth. And what I realised by doing all the research around that was the audience for me was not only school students. It was really the audience were with all the Aboriginal people who were removed who didn't have a voice to tell their story. Mm. So that this was really for them as well and for people who never found their way home. So. Wonderful. But, you know, my, my female female novels, I hate all this terminology, but the commercial women's novels, whatever, they're the ones you see at the airport. So we like that. Like <laughs> it's not rocket science. I mean, I, I guess if you're going to spend a year or two or five years writing a book, you want someone to read it. And my chick lit novels are read by men and women. I think maybe men are reading to get some ideas about <laughs> how we think about dating or don't think about dating, what to do, what not to do. Tips. Mm. New hot tips. Yeah, I'm still single, so I've got no tips for the women. <laughs> so <laughs> help the men out a little bit. But um, I think, I, you know, the audience for that is I want, I was lying on the beach reading brilliant Australian novelists, my friends like Rosie Scott and, and Georgia Blaine, and I was thinking I never saw women like me on the page. And I thought, how do I reach the readers they're reaching to start thinking about issues that were important to me, black mm-hmm. deaths in custody, um, the inter-intervention, um, the complexities of identity in the 21st century, breaking down stereotypes. How do I reach all those women? Well, they read books about relationships. And so it, it, it was a strategic move to me, even though my French publisher couldn't believe I was writing chiclet. Why would you write this? You know, and I said, well because I want to reach these readers and they don't know who Anita Heiss is. They may never pick up a book by an Aboriginal woman and they're not going to find my other books in, well, Glee books because they're here today and we love Glee books, but they're not going to find them in Tajay and Kmart. No. You know, so it's about finding ways to reach an audience with the messages that I wanted to have. Mm, strategic, as you say. I love it that you're proudly prepared to own the label Chiclet. Oh, we'll call it chocolate because well, they're brown. Chocolate. <laughs> It's a, it's a subgenre because um, I, I um, as I was saying before, you know, there's some really great chick lit around. There's also some, re- some really terrible chick lit. It's not about the genre. It's about, you know, the quality of what you're doing within the sort of conventions of, of what you're doing. I got into terrible trouble once on a panel like this at a Sydney Writers Festival a few years ago because um, I, I innocently really said to one of the panellists, and this was true about her book. It had all the conventions of chiclet. It I was, was the, in the audience. Oh, were you there? And I was horrified. Well, so was I, Anita. Because <laughs> that conversation started a whole series of conversations that Lisa Heidke and Susan Johnson and I had about when, when writers attack genres fight, when genres attack writers fight back. Mm. Because by dismissing a genre, whatever genre that is, you criticise the readers of that genre as well. Well, that's true too, yeah. So we're not, we aren't giving away any names here on that panel. But I <laughs> no, we're not. No names, no pack drill. But, but I, I just did something innocent like, you know, it's got the, it follows the conventions of chick lit and she was really annoyed with me. She got really upset with me. She's not chick lit. I don't write chick lit. I said, okay, fine, yeah. 
Um, but it was an interesting moment, wasn't it, that? Well, I think she said something like, uh, it was worse than that. It was like, I, I, it was, she was offended. She, she was. was. She might have said, I'm offended. I would never write chiclet. And what it, it, it really criticises anybody that reads in whatever the genre you're criticising. It criticises your reader. And I think that's a really offensive thing to do. We mm. all have different tastes. Some people like jazz and music. Some people like hip-hop. We all have different ways of listening. We have different ways of reading. We all have different ways of writing. And all of it's valid. Mm. Actually, there's a wonderful – you've just made me think – there's a wonderful moment in Little Women – which some of you will remember when I remind you of it, when Joe, who, as you may recall, is a budding writer and has had stories published, um, and Amy are going out visiting somewhere and one of the people they're visiting um, says, oh, I liked your last story. And Joe, who hates being praised and is very prickly, says something like, oh, well, you know, I just write that rubbish to make money. Ordinary people like it. (laughs) And there's this chilly little silence in the room because the woman has, of course, really enjoyed the story. And feels insulted in exactly the way you're describing. Um, so yeah, there's all this, so there's all these kind of sub hierarchies in readership as well about expectation and, and quality. Um, apropos, more or less, I was one of the things I wanted to ask the panel about was again because everybody here writes fiction and non-fiction. Um, when we first set up the Stella Prize in 2011, there was much discussion about what books would be eligible. And when we decided that um, it wasn't going to be another prize for a novel, that other books, specifically, you know, non-fiction as well as fiction, would be eligible for the prize, um, we got a lot of pushback. It was interesting. People were saying, this is nonsense, you know, you can't, com- you can't have a non-fiction book competing with a fiction book. I mean, that raises larger questions about prizes. But what do you all, as, as you know, writers in both genres, think about the idea that... that they should be sort of considered um, for a prize together and in competition with each other. Does that make sense to you? Thinking about the, the female specificity of the Stella Prize and the idea that, you know, fiction and non-fiction have different gender qualities. Well, I guess considering that when we talk about non-fiction, we know we're not talking about textbooks and, yeah. um, you know, technical stuff... We're talking about creative non-fiction. To me, that isn't a problem at all because mm. I think, you know, it's it's about telling a good story and whether you choose a medium of fiction or non-fiction is, is, is irrelevant. I think you can very effectively evaluate, um, you know, a, 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 a good piece of fiction compared to a good piece of non-fiction because to yeah. me as a reader anyway it's always about the narrative it's not about whether it's real or made up that's kind of irrelevant um but the bottom line for me is it's just great to have a prize and a prize that honors women's writing so mm. i wouldn't nitpick about the terms of <laughs> or the conditions at all um it would be problematic if you're trying to include other forms like poetry I think it would be very hard if it was if it was broadened to that extent Mm. you need specialist judges for poetry too I think um in a way that's kind of hard to organize what about you Anna have you got any thoughts about that um well I really agree with Deborah I think that um if you're having a prize for women's writing it's probably not that hard to make a distinction among books um whether they're fiction or non-fiction, you're picking the best book, you know, that you're recommending and I think that that's fine. And so I think that those genre boundaries are said to be very fluid between fiction and non-fiction. Personally, in my practice, 
I don't. I mean, I draw a very um, distinct line between what's fiction and what's non-fiction. Um, and I've had to think about this because sometimes Stasi Land's stuck under, you know, fiction or people write to me saying great novel or – and the whole point of that for me was that it was non-fiction. You know, the book has a – books have a different – Right, readers enter into a different contract with the writer, with the book. If you think that something is non-fiction, you read it differently from if you think that it's fiction. So the quality of the writing can utterly be compared across those genres. But the contract you're making with the reader is different. The reader is entitled to expect that what is in a non-fiction book is true of course, the truth is a is a malleable category, but getting less and less so. Mm. The more we have um, you know, allegations of fake news, the more important it is to know exactly what's true and what's not true. So in, say, Stasiland, which is obviously narrative nonfiction or creative nonfiction or whatever, everything in it is true. What makes it, um, which is very important to me, and the where that line had to be drawn um, I didn't know this when I was doing it, I've only had to really think about it afterwards, is in nonfiction for me where I can't go is into somebody's head unless they let me in. So unless a character in Stasiland said to me, this is what it felt like to climb the Berlin Wall, to be in interrogation, to, you know, be in psychiatry or whatever, I wasn't going to go and imagine what that was like. Many, many very good nonfiction writers will do that. I don't. I see that as um, that that that's the line that I draw. So I will describe what it was like for them, but they will have had to tell me what that was like. Yeah. And I will then put it. Whereas in a novel, that's the absolute purpose of the novel is to go into someone else's head. So I see those categories as very distinct. But I don't think that that affects a prize at all for women's writing. You can totally assess whether it's a great book or or not. Yeah. Across genres. Yeah. Anita, what about you? really can't add much. I think it's about the story. Yeah. The story is told well or it's not told well. And I think um, I write historical fiction so um, in terms of the difference between fiction and non-fiction I expect and the and the, the expectation of, of the reader and the right of the reader to know what they're reading is factually correct and so forth. I think I, I take the same um, process and the same ethics to my fiction as well to make sure that if I'm writing about a historical moment in time that those facts are spot on and I sign contracts often that say that I'm responsible for what is yes. in, that, in that novel. Yeah. That what I say to be fact is fact, that I've done all the research and that I'm responsible if there's any fallout around that as well. Yeah. God, yeah. just remember that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you do. It's funny, I, I, getting back to what Anna said just for a minute and, you know, this is... T- speaks to, to what you were saying as well. Um, the idea of getting into other people's heads, I don't know about the rest of you. I, re- I read a lot of biography and the biography that drives me absolutely up the wall is the one where the person actually doesn't have a lot of material and there's a lot missing. So you get this um, preponderance of the conditional tense. He would have felt terrible. You know, she should have done such and such. It's possible that so and so would have happened. I don't need to be told that. You know, and it, and it's really it's meretricious in a way. It's like I'm giving you information, but I'm covering my ass by saying, "Oh well, you know, I don't know this for sure." It, and don't write the book. 
would be my and it looks like you agree with me. Just, who are you talking about? Come on. Oh no, no. Seriously, seriously, this is not a real person. No, this is just I, I've read a number of bios where people do that and I just don't think they should. Write about the material you've got, leave the rest of it out, you know. I want to get back to the, the question of what we're calling domestic fiction. Um, Deborah, I know that you in particular have have a great interest in the materiality of, of domestic life, you know, the sort of material reality, the stuff that's right in front of you. So I thought of you, I was, I was reading a, a neurologist, I think, or a biologist, saying that women's brains are wired um, to respond to people and men's brains are wired to respond to stuff. And this did seem to me to be largely true. You know, men like action thrillers that are full of sort of fast cars and fancy surveillance equipment and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and women like characters, women like sort of engaging with and empathising with people. Um, but stuff plays a very important part, doesn't it, in, in a certain kind of domestic fiction about women's lives. I've noticed in your writing that there's a lot of material detail and that you make it work, you make it work for the meaning of your books. I'm not fully aware of that, I have oh. to say. Um, by domestic stuff, I guess, when I wrote The Household Guide to Dying, yes, because that was a metafictional novel in which the narrator was also writing how-to books, like self-domestic yeah. advice that, books. That was the one I was thinking of. Um, really, yeah. So I had to make a conscious effort to get my head around what that would mean in terms of writing the novel, which meant having a bit of a think about... Um, advice, domestic advice and reading a bit in that genre but not too much because then you go into that realm where you've over-researched and that's that's just one of the ways you're going to kill a story for sure. Um, but I, it, was, it was true that a long, long time ago I used to love reading the Sun Herald's page, You Say We Pay. Does anyone remember this? I loved it. I've, I stopped reading the Herald when they got rid of it. Because <laughs> it fascinated me because there were wonderful little micro-narratives. This is a column where people would write in with their problems, domestic problems, and other readers would write back in and respond and they'd get a $2 lottery ticket if they got their letter published. And it always fascinated me because you would get someone some random person saying, please help me, I've lost the recipe for my favourite Christmas cake. I've been baking it for 20 years and it's got this and this in it. Can, does someone have the recipe? And I'd think, if you've been baking it for 20 years, <laughs> why do you need the recipe? <laughs> or really weird stuff, you know, did you know you can, you can use the empty cartridges from... Um, disposable razor blades turned upside down as useful soap holders in the shower. And I think, what kind of person thinks of that stuff, you know? And they just little windows into ordinary lives that I like imagining, I guess, which is one of the ways that fiction starts for me. It's something very, very ordinary. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff, I suppose, generating a novel like The Household Guide to Dying. Mm. Um, what I'm conscious of is that kind of stuff which to me is research and to me is very important. That, that's, that's what everyday life is all about and we're all ordinary people. But that your 
stereotypical male reader would disdain because it's so very boringly domestic. Um, I'm not interested in stuff of a technical nature. I'm not, I'm not interested in finding out how machinery works so I can then explain that in great detail in a novel. I'm not interested in explaining anything actually in great detail in a novel. Um, and I am very conscious, I suppose, that men... It's, it's all. It's awfully easy to make generalisations in a, a topic like... Yeah. It's, it's, it's too easy to make generalisations and, and we probably will make more before we end. But it is, it is true that men are much more interested in the technical side of, of um, stuff and I have noticed from the male students that I've taught over years that if they're writing a novel that's a science fiction novel or speculative fiction or a thriller or a crime novel, there is a great deal of information and there's a great anxiety about getting that information correct. Right. Um, as if they feel the reader um, is judging them or will judge them badly if that's not correct. And that interests me yeah. very much. Some, sometimes the reader is Elizabeth Jolly once told a wonderful story about a letter she got from a, an elderly male reader scolding her for a particular detail in one of her books. Mm. He said, don't you know that doves never roost in a Morton Bay fig tree? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know I have had letters like that and they have <laughs> always been from men. Fancy. <laughs> yeah. And just, I, I was just in my Uber here yesterday, the, I said to the driver, I, I told him about the – he asked me what I was doing, told him the title of the panel and he said, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I only read non-fiction. And I said, why is that? He said, because it's faster to read than, than fiction. We didn't faster. get any further than that, yeah. I just wow. went, okay, I've got to make a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> so, so a book is something unpleasant that you have to get through as quickly as possible. I don't know, but I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. He – I think things are easy to read when you enjoy reading them. Exactly. I think that's what it is. It's you know, it's a challenge, it's a chore if you're not enjoying what you're in. But he when so when I got out I said, Try reading a novel. But I think I don't know that he'd even tried. And that's fine. Mm. I mean, I think we had this conversation, all reading matters. I, I, I'm, not too, I'm not really too concerned about why, who reads what, as long as people are reading, to be honest with you. Because mm. I think, yeah. and that's where we find the, as writers, that's where I find the gaps in what's being written and how do we reach audiences that I, that, okay, how do I reach an audience that I think should be reading about a certain issue? Um, if, if, if we can't expect them to be, if men aren't reading fiction, how do I reach them to read to learn about something that I think they should be reading about? Mm. That might sound arrogant, but I mean, there's so many gaps in the literary landscape in terms of um, Aboriginal voices that that you know I have to do that. I have a responsibility. I feel to do that. So I'm not too concerned. I know we're talking about this, and it's an important issue, but I'm not too hung up on the fact that men aren't reading my novels. To be honest with you. Because I know lots of women are and as long as they're reading and they're having conversations about the stories, whether it's about relationships or having children or not having children or whether it's about, um, you know, the anti-intervention that's written into a novel, I don't mind as long as they're engaging with the story. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah. We'll, we'll go to questions in a minute because it's got – um, but before we do, I've got one last idea to run past these ladies, and it's this. Um, I, I read a lot of, of 
you know, I did a lot of research for this panel and a lot of what I read was surveys. People had actually done, it wasn't just, you know, raw statistics from libraries. It was surveys where they actually asked readers, you know, what their, what their relationship was, I suppose, to the reading that they were doing. And the, the over, one of the overwhelmingly female responses that they got um, was that a lot of women readers tended to see novels, favourite novels, as friends and supports through tough times. Um, and, and that really spoke to me because I've, I thought about the books I take, you know, on the rare occasions when I have to go into hospital, for example. I think very, very carefully, you know, about what I'm going to take with me that I know will be um, a good companion if I'm in pain or feeling lonely or I'm sick or, or whatever. I think really carefully about that. So I wanted to ask all of you have, you, have you got books like that that you think of as friends and supports that you take with you on times of stress? Anna, what about you? I think that's a good question. Um, I can't think of anything that would come to mind that I'm particularly proud of uh, saying. <laughs> well, no, 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 for this reason. So, you know, one of my absolute all-time favourite books is um, Anna Karenina and I would take that with me because it's, it's just absolutely beautiful and it's um, full of great insights. It's also kind of flawed and baggy and magnificent and... I, I really love it. But the thing that annoys me about it, of course, that is that Anna has to die in order to give it some kind of gravitas, which is why I say I'm, you know, I don't want to admit that I would take I would probably take it. But I'm, I kind of, um, the feminist in me objects very much to the death of a woman um, being used, you know, like in every every single opera mm. <laughs> or, uh, you know, much fiction. In So it's not... You don't have men reading books where the men all die, you know. That's not what they want. But it gives a book sort of this great gravitas to have a woman die. It's a bit like, you know, it's not as bad as a man dying and it's slightly more serious than a pet. <laughs> and that, so, so that's the book I, I would take, but with, with that misgiving. And, it's, and what is it about a book like that then that, make, that is a reassurance for you, so, you know, that would make you feel... Oh, I, 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 um, I don't know. I don't know that there is reassurance in it. I love the, um, just the sheer beauty of it as a piece of art, you know, the, the insight, the sort of guts and glory of it. It's fantastic writing and I find that comforting that such a great work exists. I don't mean it actually comforts me in any – it doesn't tell me things will be all right mm. because they won't. No, exactly. Exactly. That book is in the world and that's enough to know. Deborah, I've got a feeling I could guess what your answer to this question might be. You, you might be able to guess, but it's very interesting, Anna, that that's a book written by a man for men, primarily for male readers. Anna Karenina, you yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's like a lot of high literature. So if you look at the novel for when it rises in the, you know, late or in the 17th century really, it's seen as – it's utterly disparaged. It's what women are – it's what mm. women are reading and mm. until Stern and Hawthorne and so on get onto it. And Austen is the outlier there. Mm. But it's, yes. it's a thing that women are reading in private. It's trivial and frivolous and so on. And then the men take it over and it becomes this great 19th century behemoth that you know more about than probably anybody in this, in this room. And then, you know, we're seeing that kind of unravel as well. So it depends where you put your stresses. I don't know that he – Tolstoy would have known that women would read it, but it's a lot more satisfying for a man to read about the death of a woman than for a woman to read about oh, yes. the death of a woman. Yeah. So, 
for reasons that we see in, you know, domestic violence statistics and everything else. So I think that it's really complicated, which is why I would take that with me to hospital, but what? in a complicated manner. In a, com- in a complicated manner. Um, what about Deborah? What well, about look, you? I might take Wuthering Heights. Um, fortunately, I don't have to think about what book I might take to hospital because I'm pretty healthy. Um, <laughs> and the reason I'm – and I'm assuming that's what you were thinking of. And the yes. reason I would take it is because I think if I were in that situation where I had nothing else to do but I wasn't very well, um, I might not be able to get my head around a new book. Mm. I might want to reread something that's familiar – and I might take something like Wuthering Heights because while I've read it quite a few times, I, when you, well, I guess when, when I'm thinking of rereading a book like that, I think, oh, well, I've read it so many times. I know it really well. I shouldn't reread it. I should read something else. Um, but I should know better than anyone that there's no shoulds in reading. You should exactly. read what, exactly what you want to read. And not censor yourself. So if you want to reread Wuthering Heights twice a year or whatever, I I should just do it. Unfortunately, it's another book in which a woman dies. But well, many you know, women. It's it's the nineteenth century. What are you going to do? Um, I I look, you know for exactly the same reason. I had I I lost my dad earlier this year, and we we knew that this would happen, and we knew pretty much the day on which it would happen, and I was taking the day shift. Um, by his bedside, and I looked at the bookshelf. Thought this is going to be six or seven hours. What will I take with me? And so I pulled out the bedraggled copy of Jane Eyre, for exactly the same reason that I think mm. you'd probably take Wuthering Heights, and you would take yeah. Anna Karenina, because I knew that no matter how many times I had read it, there would be things in it that would speak to me, that would mm. take me away mm. from the bedside, that would you know that would do that for me. So I remember when my younger son was very sick in hospital. Um, quite a long time ago and I I couldn't focus on his ridiculous high temperature and the fact that he was waiting for blood transfusion without letting myself fall into absolute hysteria. So mm. I just sat there rereading Lolita. Oh. Which might seem the weirdest choice of a book in those circumstances, but because it's such a beautiful novel, so powerfully written, so intriguing, a novel like that I think really comforts you because you know what the story is but you're not reading it for the story, you're reading it for a whole lot of other reasons. Mm. And I just found that similarly a, a kind of comforting thing. Yeah. Anita, what about you? Have you got a friend and companion? Um, I always say if my if my house was on fire, I would grab two things and that is a set of my parents' wedding photos because they had the ultimate love story, I believe. And um, I would grab my copy, my hardcover copy of Kath Walker's We Are Going. Oh, Which great. came out in 1964 and because she was such a pioneer and I met yeah. her and she's a role model in terms of writing and there's warm, funny poems in like Ballad of the Totems but there's the Charter of Aboriginal Rights and it, it for me it embodies everything about my purpose as a writer, um, as a human being I should say. And, um, yeah, so I would grab that. And someone bought that at Burklow's second-hand joint, not realising it was such a – for me, as a gift, not re- realising it was such a significant um, text and it was the first book of poetry published by an Aboriginal person. Yep. And um, so so brilliant was her skill in writing that reviewers at the time didn't believe it had been written by a woman, let alone a black fella. 
So, um, I, so that's my most prized possession. Well, I think I had to take novels I would take really quickly with no explanation, well, except for Jane Austen's the, the original chiclet author, uh, Emma, and um, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Excellent. I love it that we're all reverting to the 19th century. It says something. I'm not sure what. Um, okay, look, I'll tell you what. What we might do now is take some questions. I think you're all being very kind and we're all pussyfooting and being softly, softly about men reading fiction and not really discussing it, which is fine. <laughs> but it just absolutely enrages me. I mean, first of all, men create culture. So they have to read, you know, we have to want them to read what women are writing. Secondly, when men write books about the domestic, look at um, uh, who wrote the correction? Jonathan Franzen or Carl Van, Danish Norwegian guy who wrote six tomes about the domestic, it's seen as incredibly important literature. But when women write it, it's not. So that really gets me. So I think we need to be a bit angrier and a bit more forceful and get our stories out there and, and ask men why they're not. Why they're not bloody listening and reading and engaging with women. That's all. <laughs> a totally different way. Would the women and men divide change when it comes to um, detective story genre? Is that the genre where men would read as, as, as many fiction books as women? That's a great question. I, um, in, in fact, was reading something about this last night, actually, and apparently there are statistics to say that women do read more crime fiction than men, although the difference is smaller. Um, and one of the neurobiologist types who was speculating about this said that it's because men like to have things... This, is, this comes back to men reading manuals. Men like to have things laid out and explained to them. Women like to guess... The whole, you know, the, the, the central thing in crime fiction is trying to work out who done it before you get to the end, you know, and, and of, of that slow reveal of finding out what the mystery is. And then this guy was saying that women just prefer to, to be hinted at and to solve the problems of other people's minds themselves, whereas men just like to be told, you know, what happened. Um, so I thought it's not necessarily what I believe, but I thought it was a really interesting, interesting take. It'd be really interesting to see what Pam Newton has to say as a, as a crime writer and published as PM Newton, you know, so – and I don't want to speak for Pam, so we can all Google Pam's work and her books are brilliant <laughs> – but why why she published under PM Newton so it's not gender-specific? Whether there are stats to, to prove it. I think I, from what I can make out, men tend to sort of go, go more towards the, the spy novels, spy thrillers, action thrillers – Things like that. I'm not even sure that men don't like books in which men die. I think men really like books in which lots of men die as long as it's not the hero with whom they are identifying. Um, so There's some men who only read war literature and lots of men die in war literature. Lots. Yeah. I was thinking when Anna was speaking before about... So Barbed Wire and Cherry Blossoms is about World War II and the, and the POW camp and the Carib Breakout. But I know when I was putting, putting things on Instagram, I always hashtagged military history because I knew that... Oh. So there is this subconscious thing. The, the cover would suggest it's a female reading novel, but it's historical fiction and it is about the war. So I, I, but I was, I was obviously thinking, also, you know, there were men following that hashtag, maybe mm. I have a look at it. 
Yeah. You are a strategic user, I was user, not you? saying that men don't like books in which men die. They don't. Obviously, I'm talking about the main character. So they love a lot of slaughter. Like we're we're good for slaughter. Yes. <laughs> so I just like to respond to your enraged and magnificent comment. And I think there are a lot of enraged um, women out there. And I think that if and when the world changes so that women have more power, men will really want to know what we're thinking. You know. Mm. And I think that that's that maybe maybe happening and just on the detective fiction I was thinking this morning as I was coming in here that when I was about nine or two things my son is nine and he said what are you doing today mum and I said I'm going in to talk at this uh, event it's um why women read fiction and men don't so this is a comment about whether the world world will change not solely because of my nine-year-old boy but he said what is it why women read fiction and men don't and he said mum I think that's sexist And he was a little upset because he's a novel reader, so there's a glimmer of hope. And then I was thinking about detective fiction and I grew up reading my father's May Gray and Simenon stuff and um, all the Nero Wolf stuff. And I was thinking about it, I was sitting at my desk this morning and just thinking what that did as a 9, 10, 11, 12 year old was all the women in that are all babes. They're all described by what they look like, how hot they are, their marital status and they're all, yeah. And as a little girl, you're reading, you're identifying with the detective, but you have to also all of a sudden see yourself as a someone who's going to be the totally objectified babe. And that is schizophrenic and we all live with that. So we grow up having two points of view always. We are the person who is seen and the person doing the seeing. And men just don't have that. So they're not bifurcated in that way. And I think that's a matter of – that gives us an advantage in empathy much as it gives us social and political disadvantage. Mm. Can I say also I think it's generational because I do a lot of work in schools and boys are reading. They're increasingly reading more work. And it's also about authors creating resources and writing books that where young Australian boys can see themselves on the page as well. And I – all kinds of boys. And um, so I think it is generational. I think my father read Westerns. He, you know, and then my brothers sometimes read the books I give them. I was saying if I see my book on eBay that's autographed, I text my brothers straight away and say that better not be a book I gave you. <laughs> but, um, but, but interestingly, they read biography as well, but sporting biographies, biographies they're both, you know, fitness, whatever. And, um, but I think, I think there is change. I think it is generational and I think kids that are going through school now will be far, um, far more... Um, diverse in their reading will have them and I think and I just just I, I, I'm sitting here thinking I don't know how angry you wanted us to be up here today but I, I, my whole life has been angry and I'm tired <laughs> so you know I'm not going to sit here and be angry about men not reading fiction because there's more important things in my world to be angry about yeah I, I agree with that and also um, the passion and the anger is important but I've found as a writer if you write from a position of anger and bitterness, you produce a very bad book mm. that you really have to step back as much as you can from those very extreme emotions because um, I've tried it and it hasn't done me any good. Just very quickly on that and then we'll move to the next question. If I can just add about the anger. Anger is the hinterland of what we're all doing in this room today and that's tr- as true for those of us on the stage as it is for all of you. Um, 
anger is why there's such a thing as the Feminist Writers' Festival, which would not have been a thinkable thing when I was growing up. You know, what do you mean, fe what, fe what is this feminist? What do you mean, you know? Um, it's, it's produced situations where we can think about these things, where we can raise them as questions. You know, it's, 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 easy, it's easy to be angry, you know. I, know. I know this to my cost, like, you know. But once you've actually sort of processed the anger and decided what you're going to do with it, then you can talk about ideas. But you can't get to where we are now without having the anger first. That would be my, my view. Yes, I have a question, and this is regarding that, that boys reading fiction and then as they get older, they seem to stop reading fiction. And I have a nine-year-old who also absolutely loves to read more than my daughter does. But then I've been teaching a course with Deborah at the university here where we're talking to 19, 20-year-olds, and a lot of the young men said they just stopped reading in high school, reading fiction particularly. So I'm wondering what's going on there that um, that that love for fiction is there not a, as much young adult fiction um, that's directed towards young men? Why why aren't they read? There is there. I think a lot of young boys are reading a lot of fiction, but then I think as they grow older, they're not. So that's my question. This it might this might be where nature versus nurture takes over because you know all the bio the neurobiology stuff is very interesting, but there's also maybe. Boys get social when they're getting socialised into masculinity. Perhaps a part of that is the notion that reading is somehow girly, you know, yeah. weak, something you don't do. You should be playing sport, not sitting on the, you know, that kind of stuff. So it could, it could be sadly part of the part of the sort of masculine socialisation of adolescence as much as anything else. I wish it wasn't, but I think I might be partly right. Yeah, I don't know if there's any research on this, and I'm aware that that's exactly what happens at. For young readers, there's almost no distinction between the boys and girls. And then as boys grow older, they drop off reading fiction or reading altogether. And I do think um, from my own observations that it's it's very much about soci socialisation. And I know because all my life I've had to defend my reading and my reading of fiction um, from both men and women... But as particularly time-wasting, self-indulgent, frivolous, you know, in in some contexts, the most self-indulgent thing you can be seen to be doing, apart from writing a novel, is to be seen reading <laughs> a novel, because the question for non-readers and for people to whom that is a mystery is: What are you getting out of it? What are you learning? And you can't always put your finger on that. You know you're getting a lot out of it, but you, you're not reading it because you want to learn something. You're reading it because you need to lose yourself in narrative. And you need to do that for a whole lot of reasons. But it's very gratifying now that science has, in the last eight or ten years, delivered good, hard evidence on why reading fiction, and particularly reading literary fiction, is very good for the development of the brain. And good for developing empathy. So there's, if you're interested in this, there's a lot of stuff. Some of it's, a lot of it's come out of Stanford University, which actually proves that reading is good for you, which we nerdy types have always known. We just haven't been able to back it up with good, hard scientific evidence. But I love the idea that it's good for your brain. You know, throw away your Sudoku and your fish. Um, just read, you know, read stories, read fiction. It's interesting, like, you, you, we've heard, we talked about this at Byron this year about 
being told it's a guilty pleasure to read particular a particular genre. If you're reading romance, it's a guilty pleasure to do that. No one talks about watching a group of men running around a paddock with a ball filled with air as a guilty yeah. pleasure. You know, Saturday afternoon, however long those – it goes for a long time, you know, hours uh, as a guilty pleasure. No one ever no. describes it as that, ever. No, they don't. It's norm, it's, it's fine. But it's a guilty pleasure if you want to steal well, – you're stealing hours out of your day to, to read a piece of fiction – not only that, but it formed one of the. I, I some years ago published a book about Adelaide in a, in a series about Australian cities, and um, there were one review in particular was very positive, except for one thing, and the one thing was that I did not say anything about football. Um, this, of course, is Adelaide and therefore Australian rules. I had, in fact, spent three pages talking about football, but I was talking about the clubs and the socialness, and he took particular umbrage. Um, at me having said that the whole of Australian rules football culture is a psychoanalyst's paradise. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's any argument with that, but, you know, he, he took umbrage. But the idea that that was the one negative thing that would be said about that book, you know, that there's not enough sport in it. You know, not only did he not regard it as a guilty pleasure, he regarded it as a crucial piece of, of the place. You yeah. see, this is whole thing, but we have no control as a writer how someone will read your work. Exactly. So we all write through a lens, we all read through a lens. People, everybody here today is, is listening to this through their own antenna and hearing things differently as well. And we have no control over that. So somebody else would have read that book and and got value out of those three pages and maybe in a comp- – well, they would have in a completely different way. Yeah. But they were looking for something else perhaps as well. Quite. Uh, I have a very basic question for Deborah. Um, does your, did your son read Harry Potter? Um, well, I actually read those books to him because he was quite young when they were around. He, he couldn't read them for himself. So um, that's why I ended up reading all the Harry Potter books except for the last one because I drew the line um, at – the second last one I thought was very, very weak and badly edited and too long. And after we got through all of that, I said, that, OK, that's it. I'm not reading another one. If you want to read the next one, you're going to read it to yourself. So he did. So he but he hasn't reread them, which is interesting. But, I mean, if he doesn't like books by women, he has actually loved six books by a woman. Yeah. 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 But, but, of course, that was before... That was when he was a certain age, you know. He's he's older now. He's twenty one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, it appears that women are the consumers of fiction in the main, and I want to ask, who are the gatekeepers of fiction in your experience? Um, is it mostly men? Partly men? I'm asking about agents, publishers, important people in your careers who let you be published writers. Who are the gatekeepers? <laughs> um, that's an excellent question who are the gatekeepers I think that um, in my experience there are a lot of women in publishing um, and a lot of editors and my agents are women and so on but the higher up you go in publishing houses the, the fewer women uh, and that's as a kind of very bizarre inverse proportion um, but there are a lot of women in publishing I haven't had the experience of um, finding many obstacles or anything like that. So. Mm. I had a following on from what Anna just said. I was teaching creative writing at Melbourne Uni twenty years ago, um, and I asked the 
alas, late and very great Australian publisher John Iremonger, who was then um, a head of Melbourne, the, the head of Melbourne University Publishing, if he would come and speak to my creative writing class, and he was great. He said he said he would. He came in and he saw that they were mostly women, young women, um, and he said, "Look, in where I work." And in every other publishing house I've ever worked in and know about, he said, there's a pyramid. Um, you know, the bottom layer is entirely women. So is the next layer and the one after that. He said, as we get, he said, as it, as it happens at the moment, he said, at Melbourne University Publishing, there's me and everybody else in that building is a woman. Um, and, he, and, and then he sort of said, he spoke directly to the class and he said, you have to change that. Um, it's not good enough. It's up to you you know, women, young women, to change it. I don't know how successful they've been. I certainly think one of the reasons that Hilary McPhee and Di Gribble have legendary status in the history of Australian publishing is that what they did, setting themselves up as a, a you know, a feminist publishing house, a successful one, um, was extraordinary, was revolutionary. And that was only in the late 1970s. Um, for, the, for the usual reasons, you know, men tend to rise to the top for the usual reasons that one sees... In the workplace. I don't know that... I've always taken issue with the term gatekeepers. It bothers me. I'm not sure it's completely... It sort of suggests that people are being shut out. And my personal experience, and other people may say differently, my personal experience is not so much that people get shut out. It's that people get taken up. You know, so um, when someone, for example... I mean, I've been on grants selection committees... ...and people have buttonholed me at parties and said, ''Why was I rejected? You know, why was my grant application rejected?'' And I'd have to say, look, it wasn't rejected as such. We only had, you know, three grants to give and three people were successful. It wasn't a negative th decision. So the gatekeeper metaphor doesn't quite work for me because it's not a matter of keeping people out as such. It's a matter of there being limited resources and, you know, limited funds and limited paper in the world and limited readerships and all that kind of stuff. That said, of course, there's a huge amount of prejudice and um, unconscious bias in the choices that get made in publishing. Not as, again, not as much now as there used to be. Um, can I just echo something on, I think that one of, if you look at the VIDA statistics that you might be familiar with about um, who's reviewed and how much of the review pages and who's doing the reviewing and books by, are they books by women or by men? I think in that context, my impression is, especially with the bigger American magazines, that the editor, that again, this pyramid applies and that those decisions are often being made by men. Uh, so they have um, a lot of unconscious bias to, over, to overcome, I think, you know, before those statistics come out in any way even. I think also the... Um, I'm old enough to have a, a sense of how things have changed for the better in publishing and, and if there are gatekeepers in publishing and they're women, thank God for that. It's wonderful. In my experience, I have dealt with at an editorial publishing agenting level predominantly, sometimes exclusively with women. But there's a context for all of this which goes back to when we were emerging as readers. And I can remember when my second year of, of um, my BA at Sydney University, I was actually doing two English courses. And out of all the subjects that fed into those two courses, I was given one text to read, or there was one text to read, which was written by a woman. And it was a Jane Austen novel. And at the time, 
some other undergraduates and I jumped up and down and said this wasn't good enough. We have to, we have to have subjects that include books by women, most of the f students being female, mind you. And there was, there was great kerfuffle in the dusty old English department of Sydney University. We were considered to be radicals. So um, there has been a generation. There have been generations of women and men who've been brought up through school and university only on male literature. But you know, we don't call it male literature. It was just called, you know, romantic poets. Deborah, this, this might be the moment to quote the late great Thea Astley. The the um, well, okay. That here's something I prepared earlier. <laughs> Yeah, when I was thinking about this panel, I did. It, I was reminded of this wonderful book, um, Rooms of Rooms of Their Own, that Jennifer Ellison brought out nearly thirty years ago. Yeah, I know it's terrible, isn't it? And she interviewed a number of female writers, and Thea Astley, who's one of my favourite authors, was amongst them. And um, the interviewer had asked her a question about what what it is that men and women wanted to read, and Thea Astley said, you know, she thought women want very different things from a novel than men. And she came back and said to um, Ellison, you have to remember my age. She said, men didn't listen to women when they expressed an opinion. I always felt that they wouldn't read books written by women because it would be like listening to a woman for three hours, which would be intolerable. <laughs> so Thea Astley quite famously when she was first writing was not really writing in a female voice and didn't start exploring a distinctly female voice until her later novels and the earlier novels were criticised for not being women's novels by a woman. But as she says, she grew up in a climate where men didn't listen to women so why would they read a book, you know, written by a woman? So she tried to find a way to make it more... Neutral. In fact, she, in another interview, she said she felt she'd neutered herself and that she had to do that as a writer to be successful. And she was very successful. As you mentioned earlier, she won four Miles Franklins, for instance. And um, my theory is that men that are not reading fiction and they're not reading fiction by women, not because they're less imaginative not because they're less interested in fiction, because they're wonderful male fiction writers and fictional critics like James Wood, you know, fantastic critic on, on fiction, but that they're conditioned to hear their own voices. So they don't... I guess when they go to look for, for books to read, they are looking for affirmation of those kinds of voices and they're not so interested in looking to challenge that. Whereas, as Anna mentioned earlier, women are brought up with the idea that women are objects and subjects and they're used to exploring very different representations of, of the self. There's a great, like the great um, feminist theorist, Simone de Beauvoir, a line I've never forgotten. She said, there are two kinds of people, human beings and women. <laughs> and as soon as a woman tries to behave like a human being, she's accused of trying to be a man. Mm. Yeah. I think was what happened yeah. to see it. Yeah. 
that might be all we have time for, but it's, I think it's a beautiful note to end on. Finally, thank you all for coming along. And please join me for, in thanking Karen, Anna, Deborah and Anita. If you enjoyed this presentation of Rights for Festivals, please jump onto the Rights for Women website, www.rightsforwomen.com, to see what else we have on offer. There's Mudgee, there's the National Young Writers Festival, we have Scone coming up, and many, many, many more sessions of the Feminist Writers Festival Sydney yet to come. So jump on onto our website and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting writing festivals. They're a really important part of our writing, reading and living community.